you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So today, we, we continue on in the Gospel of John, in the fifth chapter, and we're going to be in verses 31 through 47. John chapter 5, 31 through 47. I'm sure many of you are kind of like me, where you found yourself in a situation at one time or another where you were kind of blue in the face trying to make a point, trying to prove a point, validate a claim that you have made. And in the effort of doing so, you find your audience is not taking you seriously. They're not confirming it at all. They just kind of are eh, brushing it off, and it's frustrating. It's like parenting. It's like parenting. We tell our kids all the time, hey, you need to go brush your teeth because if you don't, you're going to have cavities. And we say those things with certainty. We say them every day. Don't we, Gomer children? Yes. And we say it with authority, right? With exaction, assurance, this is going to happen. And it seems to always fall on deaf ears. Always fall on deaf ears. And then... We go to the dentist, and the dentist says this same exact thing and then verifies it with a, hey, your teeth are getting cavities, and they're going bad. And then all of a sudden, the statements we have made are finally validated by a professional, right? And so it's it's hard, and it's most often difficult to be that self-verifying voice of authority, and honestly, there's, there's good reason for that, because we people, we are sinners, and many times we can't be trusted in what we're thinking or saying or doing. And honestly, I can't blame our children for not fully believing us. We may or may not have embellished here and there on the severity of the issue of not brushing your teeth a time or two by saying, look, you didn't brush last night, your teeth are going to rot and fall out. And then years later, their teeth are still fine, right? So we always have a tendency to kind of embellish the story. Jesus is here in his ministry, not dealing with dental hygiene, but he's dealing with authoritative claims. He's dealing with the issue of being considered valid for his authority. He is backing it up with his words. He's backing up his authority with miracles, with signs, with everything. It's textbook, if you will. But everything about Jesus, though it's perfect, and though he's not speaking in hyperbole, or he's not giving any sinful reason or motives here, the Jews are still reluctant to believe him. They're still reluctant to believe him. He's essentially, in their eyes, this self-acclaimed authority. No one else is backing him up. He's just his own his own resource, his own authority. And so Jesus then here will turns to the defense of his authority and ministry, and he turns it to the Father. And it'll be the Father who ultimately testifies to and testifies of the authority and the works of Jesus and therefore makes the authority of Jesus valid and true. A testimony in its basic definition, is a form of evidence 
that is obtained from a witness who makes a solemn statement or declaration of a fact. So today, Jesus will present to his audience a testimony of the Father. And the Father will be the star witness, giving nothing but solemn statements and declarations of fact. It will be the greater testimony of the Father that validates Jesus this morning. And the Father will do this, and he won't even say a word in this passage. And so we will see a greater testimony. We'll see this greater testimony develop in in two sections. Verses 31 and 32 being the first section, where Jesus is going to make the case that the Father is the one who validates the testimony of Jesus. 31 through 32, that Jesus will make the case that it is the Father who validates Jesus' testimony. And then verses 33 through 47, Jesus will show the Father's validating testimony of Jesus through three credible witnesses. John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and the Bible, Scripture. So 33 through 37, Jesus is going to show that the Father is a validating witness or testimony of Jesus and uses three witnesses, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and Scripture. And so the Father, first, validates the testimony of Jesus. So just read along with me, starting in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, My testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. And you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Father, help us now in understanding your word. Help me in the preaching of your word. Help us in the hearing and the understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Father validates the testimony of Jesus. So if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
This is coming off the heels of verse 30, which says, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus is out and about saying, look, I don't just do this on my own accord. What the Father does, I do. What, I, what the Father says, I say. This isn't just me in my own authority, my own power, but I am operating in the power of the Father. And so Jesus' testimony, just to make sure we understand here, what Jesus is not saying, He's not saying His own words are not true. He's not saying His own testimony is not valid. It doesn't mean that when Jesus goes out and speaks of these things, then somehow we have to always put them in question. But what He's doing here is He's creating a position here, kind of like we see in Matthew 18, or where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in their midst. That whole idea of church discipline. That if you're going to have a form of church discipline or call somebody out on their sin or hold them accountable to it, you don't just do it on the account of one witness. You do it on the account of two or three validating the claim that that person needs to repent. So Jesus is essentially appealing to the court of the day. Don't allow me to just validate myself let us bring in some witnesses to validate my authority. And so he says in verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. And who's the he? Who's this other that Jesus is talking about? It ties back up into verse 30. It's the Father. The he is the Father. It is the Father that bears witness about Jesus and what he says about Jesus is true this is important because by the time we get to the eighth chapter these Jews are going to falsely accuse Jesus of testifying only of himself in chapter 8 verse 13 but today Jesus is making very clear on the front end I'm not here validating myself I am going to call in witnesses to validate that what I am saying and doing is true. And so since this ministry is not his own, D.A. Carson puts it, the burden of proof lies with the Father. It's on the Father to be able to prove that Jesus is true. And so these first couple verses are really just an introduction to the rest of the passage here. But as we kind of bring it in home a little bit, if we think about our own culture, if we think about who we are as a people, we are, putting it very mildly, a narcissistic culture. We are narcissists. We really like ourselves. We really like everything to be about us and how we feel and how we experience things. Even when we come into church, it's about what hits our ears. It's about how the band sounds. It's about how the preacher sounds. It's about how everything feels around us. It makes us feel good. And then we like to go talk about ourselves and everything about us in every way possible. But you see that begin to kind of bleed into testimonies and stories. And we love to tell stories about us and how things have affected us or changed us. We love really good, impacting stories and for the purpose so that we can wow others. Man, we really love strong, good testimonies in church. Like if you weren't an ex-con or a murderer, now come to Jesus, your story is probably pretty lame, right? We like the big powerful stories. 
Something that's good to share and really hear. Something you could maybe turn into a movie or a really cool book. But our stories, we have to understand, are not stories that validate the gospel of Jesus. You hear me? Our stories don't validate the gospel of Jesus. Jesus doesn't look to us for validation. He doesn't look to us for validation. He changed us. He changed you and me so that others can see His saving work. We are a walking testimony. Understand, hear me clearly, your story matters. I'm not belittling our value and worth as human beings and the story of our lives and the journey that the Lord has us on, but it is not about us. We are not God's gift to humanity. We are sinners saved by grace. And so our our testimonies need to be like a floodlight. A floodlight illuminates a certain space so that the attention is brought on to whatever it is illuminating and not the light itself. We need to be like floodlights illuminating Christ so everything about us tells of the grand story and the work and person of Christ and not ourselves. And again, I'm not devaluing our existence and what God has done in our lives. That's a beautiful thing. But it's not only about that. We need to make much of Him, not much of ourselves. It is Jesus who validates our testimony. Not we who validate Jesus. And this is going to be the hard pill to swallow, but we have to stop trying to validate ourselves and just allow Jesus to do all the talking for us. Right? And so when people hear us and see us, just like when Jesus spoke and just like when Jesus was seen, they were seeing the Father, when people see us and they hear us, they should see Jesus. And so Jesus continues really in His humble trajectory not to do or say anything apart from the Father. And He carries that into His appeal that even the Father's testimony is a is not outside of what Jesus has been called to do. And so we begin to see, and this is where the bulk of this passage is, the Father's validating testimony of Jesus through the three witnesses, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and Scripture. So Jesus again turns the attention away from Himself and to the testimony of the Father. The Father validates Jesus' testimony through three credible witnesses. John the Baptist, the works, and Scripture. So witness number one is essentially called to the stand. And here's witness number one. John the Baptist. And this will make sense in a moment why this is the testimony of the Father. Verse 33, You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. These Jews have gone to John the Baptist. They have borne witness to this truth. John 1.29, the Gospel of John, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist had said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we opened up and cracked open the Gospel of John, immediately we were brought into the witness or the testimony of John. And here's the testimony of John. There's Jesus. There's the light of the world. Jesus did not go to John the Baptist prior to his ministry and go, 
Okay, let's run through the script. Here's how you're going to introduce me. Here's how I'm going to enter after you make formal introductions. And then I'll come in. I'm like, hey, I'm the light of the world. That's not what he did at all. There was no interaction beforehand. This instruction that John the Baptist is following is coming from none other than God the Father. And so how do we know this? If you were to go to Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord visits Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, Jesus' uncle. And he tells him that John the Baptist will be a forerunner for the Messiah. And in response to this, later on, Zechariah prophesies, saying to John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, the Father. Prophet of the Father. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Jesus is inside His mother's womb when this is happening. He's not even around having this conversation. It is the Lord who's coming and saying through the angel that you are going to be a prophet of the Father. And so the Jews know that Jesus did not give John the Baptist this instruction, this, this word. They know, according to John the Baptist's message, that his authority has come to him from God the Father, from the Word. And so John the Baptist testifies as a witness that Jesus operates under the Father. And so this is the Father validating Jesus through witness number one, John the Baptist. And verse 34, not that this testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. Jesus is already coming out the gate saying, John the Baptist isn't validating me. <laughs> this is for the purpose so that you might be saved. But he is a credible witness to who I am. And so there's a uniqueness to John the Baptist's testimony. It serves a better purpose that they may be saved. You see, Jesus, he runs into these issues with these authorities, with these rulers of the day, and it is contentious at, point, at some points here, but Jesus' motive is not to beat them down or to prove them wrong, but ultimately to win them over. Jesus is saying, John came not to validate me, but so that you might turn in repentance from your sin and Go to the Father. But you're missing it. You're missing it. He was a burning and shining lamp, verse 35. John chapter 1 tells us that John the Baptist was not the light, but he was a light bearer, if you will. And this light of John the Baptist was something reminiscent of Psalm 132, verse 17, which says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on his crown, his crown will shine. There's a light that's coming. John the Baptist is coming. But his light is not the light. It is not the great light. It is a, it is a product of the greater light. Right? Like taking one candle and lighting another where John the Baptist has been lit from the Father. I feel like there's some cool cultural reference in there that could be thrown in for JB being lit. And I move on. 
and you were willing to rejoice in for a while in His light. There was genuine excitement. There was genuine expectation for the Messiah during this time. This was something, there was constant murmurings and conversations about this. And so this joy, this rejoicing mentioned here is also used in John chapter 8, verse 56. This is a very strong use of the word joy. And it's used in chapter 8 in this way. Jesus speaking to the Jews again. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Rejoicing in the light of John the Baptist would ultimately come to an end. But the light of Jesus would be cause for eternal rejoicing. John the Baptist's light would go out. But the light of Christ gives us reason to rejoice for eternity. But the testimony I have, it's greater than John, Jesus says. There's a weightier testimony than that of John the Baptist. And so we'll see this in the next witnesses below. And we have to remember, John the Baptist came bearing witness to the light, making very clear, I am not the light. Jesus does use our testimonies for His glory. He uses them to lead people to salvation in Him. There's no denying that. When you open your mouth, when you open your life, your example with a clear picture of Jesus, and others see it, hear it, and take Jesus up in faith, that is a wonderful thing, and it's the very means by which God saves people. He uses you and me to spread His Word and the truth about the Gospel. And it's not just by our mouths, but by our life, our action, everything. But we have to remember, we are like John the Baptist. We are just light bearers to the real light. And we are calling people to Jesus. We are not calling them to ourselves. And despite the greatness of John the Baptist, Jesus says that there is a greater a weightier witness to validate who He is. And that's important because we often put a lot of strain and a lot of stress on ourselves as people to be a better witness of Jesus to the world. We put a ton of pressure on ourselves. And we'll see that in a moment. There's a greater witness to Christ and it's not us. But let me ask, what sort of pressures have you been putting on yourself to be a stronger, a greater witness for Jesus that you might need to just simply surrender to Him. There is a a pressure that mounts around here. And sometimes the best testimony that we can hear is a testimony that doesn't really have any awesome tale to it. It's just boring. Maybe even monotonous. And that may be good, Because in that testimony, the goal is not the incredible nature of the story or the storyteller, but the incredible nature of our God and the incredible work of Jesus by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave. That's where the attention needs to be. John the Baptist never felt pressure to perform. Ever. 
Why? Because he knew it was not about him. He didn't care what he wore. He didn't care what he ate. He just did what he had to do to fulfill what God called him to do. And then he was going to die. And then his life, ultimately, as we move on from these pages, his life is going to be just a, a, almost a faint reminder, like a faint memory, if you will. As we dive into the works of Jesus through the rest of the Gospel, we're going to, at times, find ourselves going, oh yeah, John the Baptist. But we'll never, never at any point go, oh yeah, Jesus. No, He is front and center. Everything, all eyes, all ears are on Him. So the Father used John the Baptist as the first witness to Jesus. John the Baptist was a credible witness. But the second witness will overshadow ultimately the witness of John, making him a memory, if you will. The next witness on the stand is the works, that is the signs and the miracles, the works of Jesus. Witness number two. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I like how James Montgomery Boyce puts it. He says, Christ's works are signs, not just His miracles, and so are His words. Everything he, done, everything he does is done to reveal God. So everything is a sign. Everything is a wonder. His words, His actions, everything about it, His thoughts, everything about Jesus is something to behold and something that will ultimately reveal the Father. And what are those works? What are those works in the Gospel of John? Well, we've already seen a few. We saw water turned into wine in chapter 2. We saw the healing of a nobleman's son in chapter 4. We saw the healing of a paralytic in chapter 5. We're going to see the feeding of 5,000. We're going to see him walking on water. We're going to see him healing a man who was born blind. And really, the, one of the greatest stories here is seeing him raise Lazarus from the dead. But even beyond that, we're going to see Jesus die and rise from the dead. These works, these signs, these wonders, these miracles of Jesus are no doubt a greater witness than John the Baptist. It doesn't it doesn't mean that what John the Baptist did was not worth it or it, it, it makes it null. But really, John the Baptist is saying, I'm just preparing you for what's about to come. And so this is a greater witness. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. Well, how has He borne witness about Him? We haven't even heard an explicit statement from the Father in these verses. This is most likely a reference to the baptism of Jesus. As John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, though it's not recorded more directly here in this Gospel, but we do understand in the other accounts that the Father spoke, Behold my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Audibly heard. Visually seeing the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus. There is no doubt about that. But even more so, more than the audible voice of the Father and His visual presence is the very Word made flesh. 
The very Word made flesh. The very Word spoken by Jesus. His actions. His light are all the ways the Father has testified about Jesus. It's mysterious, right? And profound. And so and thus, to reject Jesus is to reject ultimately the testimony of the Father. And if you reject the testimony of the Father, you have three indictments. We have three indictments here. First is this. Jesus says to them, look, you have His voice, you have never heard. If you can't hear Jesus, you can't hear the Father. And so He's literally telling these Jews, you don't know what the Father is saying, you can't hear what He's saying, because ultimately you can't hear what I am saying. The second indictment is, His form you have never seen. They are not seeing the Father because they are not seeing Jesus. God manifested right in front of them. Their eyes are wide shut. Like their eyes are open, but they can't see a thing. They're completely blind. And the third indictment is, and you do not have His Word abiding in you. They are not abiding in His Word, and His Word is not abiding in them because they are not abiding in Jesus. You can't have the Father without the Son. You can't have the Son without the Father. And this word abiding, John's Gospel loves this word abiding. Over 40 times it's used in this Gospel. Used more than anywhere else. It makes up for more than half of the uses in the New Testament. This word abiding. The basic definition of it means to remain in the same place over a period of time. To remain. To stay. And so, bend that to theology. Here's the theological definition of that. It is the expression of divine life in the believer. It is the expression of divine life in the believer. That word is staying in them. It's not going anywhere. It's with them forever. So that means all the abiding life of a disciple is to help us abide in both the present and enduring salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. It helps us in this moment, and it helps us in the long game. For if you do not believe the One whom He has sent, Jesus says, He's saying they're missing the second, greater, and weightier witness of the Father, and thus they are not abiding in God at any level because God's Word is not divinely present in their lives. There is no abiding. There is no enduring love in their souls, or even in the present. And so these Jews are facing a triple indictment. This second witness took the stand and really brought the hammer. And so the indictment against the Jews was not so much leveled in the presentation of John the Baptist, but in the works of Jesus. The Jews had that moment of rejoicing with John the Baptist, but that rejoicing, they weren't rejoicing in really what John the Baptist was rejoicing in. Or even their forefather, Abraham. Church, when people reject your words, when they reject your testimony, your witness to the things of God, that is one thing. But when people begin to reject the works of Jesus, they are committing a weightier sin and offense. In the judgment day, when Jesus judges, 
He's not going to hold persons accountable because they rejected somebody's personal story. (laughs) He's going to hold them accountable to Himself, to His work, to His salvation, to His righteousness. You and I are not God. You and I are sinners saved by grace. And it is not to us that others have to answer, but ultimately to the Lord. And so we have to call them to His works, to His words, to His way of life, to His signs, His wonders, and ultimately to His beautiful work on the cross. What the world needs to see from you and me more than anything is the abiding Word of Jesus in our lives. That's what the world needs to see from us more than anything. They need to see that our lives are an ever-expression of the divine life of Christ. Let me say it again. They need to see that our lives are an ever-expression of the divine life of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? They need to see how the words of Jesus express themselves and how we speak, how we live, how we behave, worship Jesus, not only for the salvation we have now, but in the salvation that is to come. Abiding in Jesus does not look like living in fear, but in complete confidence in God. Remember, we are told the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? It's living and active. It is not dead. It is not inactive, but it is living and active. The Word of God, by the power of the Spirit, changes us from the inside out. It makes us born again, as we've already seen in the Gospel. It takes us from death to life. And so church, because of what Christ has done, and because of the abiding Word and love of God in us, we can hear the Father. We can hear Him because we can hear His Word actively through His Son, Jesus. We can see the Father, church, though we have never seen Him because His presence has been manifested through Christ in us. And we have the Word of the Father abiding in us Because we take Jesus up in faith and we love Him. This is going to be the remarkable thing when we get to John chapter 17. Jesus is basically telling the disciples, you know the Father. You're aware of who He is. And that is because they know Him. That's the tight union that Jesus is pulling here. He's not not pulling punches. He's not lying. He's, He's not saying, well, some of what I'm doing is like the Father, and some of what I'm saying is like the Father. No, He's a mirroring example in word and deed and righteousness, holiness of who the Father is. If you see Jesus, you see the Father. In this day and age, we are seeing a greater number of people living in fear, scared about the now, scared about the future. I'm not talking about a holy, reverent fear of God, but a, an irreverent fear of man. We are seeing even our brothers and sisters in the faith succumb to the fear of the end times. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. They have fear of the evening news 
Because the evening news is abiding more in their hearts than the love of God. It is possible there is some similarity to the Jews of the day. They wanted their Messiah to overcome Rome, to come in, to grant them their God and King, and to rule over them again. Their expectation of the Messiah King would fall short of really what they wanted. Today we're seeing Christians almost resort to a panic and forget completely that Jesus is the Messiah King. That He's currently reigning and ruling making His enemies a footstool under His feet. He offers something that allows us to presently hope in our salvation and something that will give us the strength to endure because of the salvation we have through Him. He doesn't provide us something that is weak and frail and falls apart when human institutions and governments and evil around us begin to crouch in. He gives us something that overcomes because He has overcome the world. The abiding Word of Jesus gives us that assurance and peace. We need to consider all those we know who seem to be on the edge, who seem to be on the fringes, and call them to stop panicking, stop freaking out at all the crazy of the world, and simply abide in Jesus. I know that seems oversimplistic, but it's true. Abide in Christ. So John the Baptist and the works of Jesus, they stand as the first two witnesses, but now comes in the final witness. And this final witness is the heaviest of them all. This third witness is Scripture. Scripture. I love the way that James Montgomery Boyce kind of breaks this out in three categories. The purpose of Scripture, the misuse of Scripture, and the accusation of Scripture. So I'm going to kind of follow that flow. So witness number three, Scripture, and hitting on the purpose of Scripture. Jesus says, look, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So now Jesus kind of really turns the table and He focuses hard on them. Studying the Bible will be no different than any other book if the reader does not understand the content of the Bible and the purpose of the Bible. It could just be read like a historical book if you want. And you can completely miss the purpose. You can completely miss the context. But it is the content and the purpose of the Bible that makes it life-giving. That makes it eternal. Paul hits on this in his letter to the Romans. He writes of the Jews... In Romans 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the entire Bible, the Old Testament, at least to the Jews, has the purpose has the focus, has the content that points to Christ, that He is coming, He is on His way. That is the very purpose of the Old Testament. Jesus was the fulfillment, the end of the law. And the Jews are missing it entirely. Paul writes in Galatians 3.21, 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Meaning, if righteousness could be attained by us obeying the law on our own, then we don't need Jesus. We can just attain righteousness on our own. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. To put it simply again, the entire Bible was anticipating, was pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says. Jesus is saying the Scripture, the Old Testament especially, is all pointing to me. I am the purpose of Scripture, Jesus says. But in spite of its purpose, if you don't read it properly and understand it for its purpose and content, it can easily be misused. And so we see that the misuse of Scripture in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This statement reveals that these Jews did not properly understand the purpose and the content of the Scripture. Their eyes, their ears have been completely shut up. Not understanding the Word of God before them. The very Messiah who is fulfilling the very Word that they seem to know so well. But here's the problem. They use the Scriptures not for the purpose of pointing to Christ, but for an end in themselves. They're narcissists. <laughs> it's about me. Reading me into the Scripture. Reading me into the passage. Many of us have seen that flying around on Facebook, right? We are not David, right? That whole idea, reading us into the Scripture. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. I knew a guy in seminary. I feel like I have more bad stories about seminary than good, but there's so many good stories, but the bad ones stick out the most. And so there was this guy who was a staunch Calvinist. And if you don't know what a Calvinist is, that's good. But if you do, track with me. So he was a staunch Calvinist, and he literally had a Bible, a little Bible that he held, and he called it his Calvinistic Bible. And he literally highlighted in all the pages of Scripture how he could defend the doctrine of Calvinism. And that's how he held that Bible. This, that is a misuse of Scripture. He was using his Bible to make a doctrinal point, though the Bible in his hands, its very purpose was not to defend Calvinism, but was to show us that Jesus comes to save sinners. So he had a misuse of Scripture. It is completely possible to misuse the Bible all the time, even when we think it's of the best intentions. And so Jesus does not put His validation in anyone other than the Father and the Father's Word. So He says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. He didn't come to be a crowd pleaser. He didn't come to tickle the ears of the people. He came to be a glorifier of the Father in heaven. And because the Jews misused the Scripture, 
They were found rejecting the Father because they were ultimately rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus says plainly and clearly, but no, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. It would not be fun to hear, but Jesus says it with all authority. How can He say that? John John 2 reminds us, But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them, talking about sinners, because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus understood that men, people, are sinners and wicked. Completely wicked. He didn't need anyone to validate that. He knew that without a shadow of a doubt. These men do not love God. There was no abiding divine love of God in them. If so, they would be on their knees, on their faces before Jesus this very moment. So Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name. The love of the Father you think that you have in you, you don't have in you. And in fact, I come in His name. Jesus is putting the Father's name to everything. Everything that He says, everything that He's he's doing, everything that He's thinking, He's saying, I am doing this in the name of the Father. And so my actions, my words, everything are the Father's actions or the words. That's... That should cause all of us to kind of step back and caution a little bit. And here's why. Because to claim to do something in the name of the Father could either be tied to blessing or cursing. No one quickly ties their name to the Father or ties their life to the name of the Father unless there is first some incredible amount of reverence for the Father. To tie the Father's name to something that would ultimately be tied to evil is what it means to take the Father's name in vain. It's not just walking down the street, stubbing your toe and saying the Lord's name in vain. It is tying evil to the name of the Lord. That is the ultimate taking the Lord's name in vain. And so these Jews are sitting here saying to Jesus, questioning His authority, questioning His power, questioning His legitimacy, and Jesus has the audacity to say, in the name of the Father, I do these things. Jesus comes giving glory to the Father. Jesus rises above the rest. We understand that when somebody comes in claiming to do something in the name of the Father and they are not, they are doomed. We see that in Acts 12 with King Herod. He eventually got the praise as he was persecuting the church King Herod of Agrippa was being praised basically as a god. And because he didn't give glory to God, it says that God struck him down. Jesus is still standing. He has not been struck down. The ground has not opened up and swallowed him. Right? He's still there. And Jesus is saying, you do not receive me. (laughs) Had they known the Scriptures, they would see the only Messiah standing before them. And they would receive Him. And Jesus plays on this. He says, but if another comes in His own name, you will receive Him. Jesus is challenging the thinking of the Jews. They're quick to follow those who validate themselves. Right? 
their own validation, claiming in their own name that they bear witness to the things of God. Hey guys, believe me, trust me, you don't need, I don't need to prove this any other way, but I am a prophet. I am the Messiah. They have no credible witnesses. And Scripture definitely does not come to their defense. And yet these Jews who may be accusing Jesus are running to them and receiving them. <clears throat> 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus goes straight to the heart. It's like a kill shot right here. The Jews were not seeking the glory of the Father. That's why they are completely blind to Jesus. They were actually seeking glory for themselves. This is the lens through which they were reading Scripture. Not seeking for the things of God, but seeking for the things that would give them glory. They saw the glory that God was receiving, and they were saying, I want that. I want a piece of that. I want a part of that. I want my name to be written alongside the names of those in the Old Testament. For them, a Messiah wouldn't be one who went against them or challenged them, but this Messiah would be impressed by them. Wow, you guys are really something. D.A. Carson sums it up well. They were open to messianic claimants who used flattery or panted after great reputations or whose values were so closely attuned to their audience that their audience felt that they were very wise and farsighted. They were not open to the Messiah that Jesus was turning out to be, one who thought the only glory or praise worth pursuing was the glory of God. These Jews wanted the spotlight. They wanted their name in a pew. They wanted their name on some stained glass. They wanted a building named after them, and Jesus wasn't going to give it to them. And so we see <clears throat> there's a purpose in the Scripture. If you don't see the purpose or understand the content, you begin to misuse the Scripture for self-glory. And So Jesus reveals how He, the Father-appointed Judge, will allow the very Word they claim to follow to be the very means by which they stand accused before the Father. And so here it is, the accusation of Scripture in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Jesus is saying, I don't have to do anything. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. You don't want to set your hope on me? You're setting your hope on Moses? He accuses you. Moses in the Scripture handles the accusation. God's Word automatically and instantly doesn't just accuse these Jews, but accuses all. There's no one who can escape that reality. And so here we have the scales of God's law. It can either condemn, or it points to a Savior. God's Word will either condemn you, or it will lead you to a Savior. The law requires perfection. And therefore, it condemns. doesn't mean the law is bad, or you should ignore the law or run away from the law. No, the law is ultimately good, but it's not necessarily good for sinners because it condemns us because we can't measure up. The law is perfect. Why? Because our God is perfect. He is the standard. 
So the very standard, and here's the good news, the very standard of perfection required by the law is perfectly offered through the perfect works of Jesus. You can be perfectly condemned or you can be perfectly saved, perfectly justified in Jesus. God doesn't just leave us there dead in our sins without hope in the world. He offers Himself. He gives Himself. He gives His Son. He offers a way out because He knows we cannot rise to the occasion when it comes to our standard. Our ways of living fall short of the glory of God. And so ultimately, that is the hope of Moses. But not these Jews. And therefore, they're accused by him. Jesus says, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. The most standout example is in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, when Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Pointing to Jesus. This is a messianic passage. Pointing to Christ. There's one who is coming that is greater than me. Moses didn't make it into the promised land, but that didn't mean he gave up and quit. Why? Because there was something greater beyond. Something far greater. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Moses wasn't just looking for land and for cattle and for water. He was looking forward to the Messiah. He was looking forward to not just a temporary rest until he became old and died, but an eternal rest of which he would enter into forever. Jesus says, though, but you don't even believe his writings. How are you going to believe my words? Look, the Old Testament is not some book with hidden codes or messages where you have to decode it and try to figure it out. That's what all the crazies do. That's why they're fearful all the time. But, and it's not like some big grand game of hide-and-seek Jesus all over the place. And like, is Jesus here? Is Jesus there? No, it's very clear. It's very plain. Very plain. God is not trying to trick us. He's not trying to hide the truth from us. It is in the open, just as Jesus is standing in the open right before these Jews who are accusing him. Just as plain as day. The problem is, we don't receive it by faith. Why read your Bible? Because it is the living testimony of the Father about the Son. Why understand its meaning? Because to know its purpose and content is to know Jesus, the Savior of the world. Why read the whole Bible, including some of the most boring parts of the Bible? Because in those boring parts are snapshots of the hope of Christ. And those monotonous parts have more life bound in their repetition and hard-to-pronounce words than all of your personal self-help goals and dreams could ever muster in 10,000 lifetimes. The one who labors to understand and learns to plant those words deep in their heart is the one who finds an endless treasure of Christ and a deep and abiding love of God. We cannot simply be New Testament Christians. We need to understand the testimony of Jesus expands across all of redemptive history. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Him. 
our, our beginning and end of witnessing about Jesus doesn't just start with John 3.16 and end with the Roman road, but it expands the full counsel of God's Word. Well, pastor, it's not easy to understand it. It's not easy to read the book of Leviticus. <laughs> it's not easy to read the book of Numbers. Yeah, but God is telling us something about Himself that we need to hear and understand. It's not about you. Pay attention, son. <laughs> the Word of God, the Bible, Scripture is the greatest and weightiest testimony of the Father about the Son. The Bible stands as the greatest witness to the Gospel of Jesus and validates everything He did as coming from the Father. This is greater even than His own works. Our culture thrives on personal testimonies and miraculous signs and wonders to tell the world of Jesus. Jesus is telling these Jews that, that the proof in the pudding can be found in one's testimony and even in one's own work, but none of that amounts to anything without the Word. The Bible speaks of faith as the means by which sinners come into eternal life. And faith in what? Faith in one's personal testimony? Faith in signs and wonders? No, faith in Christ alone. Faith in the Word made flesh. It's not enough to just hear or see John the Baptist. It's not enough to just watch Jesus die on the cross and come out of the grave. He appeared to hundreds after His resurrection. Even Josephus recorded His resurrection and still did not believe. What matters is that everything Jesus says and does is received by faith. And faith comes from the hearing the Word of God. This is why John's Gospel begins with, in the beginning was the Word. Before creation, there was nothing but God. And when God created, He created out of nothing. And He used only His Word. He spoke and it came into being. And so that's why His Word matters. It is His Word that spoke all things into being, nothing less. It is His Word that called Moses out of Egypt. It was His Word that Israel was commanded to obey. It was His Word that gave the prophets a platform to announce, thus says the Lord. It is the Word of God that came to earth as a baby boy, lived among us, died on a cross, was buried in a grave, and resurrected to new life. It was the Word of God that brought forth Jesus from the dead. It was the Word of God that commissioned all of us to go unto all the world and make disciples of all nations. And it is the ongoing Word of God that calls forth sinners like you and me from the depths of our sin and into His wonderful light. And it will be at the Word of the Father that Jesus returns and by the Word of Jesus that He calls us unto Himself for all eternity. The Word matters. So there's a greater testimony, church. And that greater testimony is the Word of God. And His Word will either accuse you or set you free. Accuse you or set you free. And that greater testimony is found in Jesus Christ. And it is His testimony that will validate your salvation, your hope, your guaranteed inheritance with Him. But you don't need validation you need a rightly validated testimony that is sure and true. A testimony that has the ability to set you free. So come and abide in the Word of God. Our ultimate and greater 
testimony. 